I'm Gary Post, and Mark and uh, Lori and, and uh, their kids are enjoying some time with uh, some time together over the holidays, and uh, they're away for the weekend. I wanted to make you, you aware, if you're not already, that uh, uh, an old friend of ours uh, went to be with the Lord over the week, uh, Belva Easley. If you, uh, you, you may know her. If not, you missed a treat because she is a, a, a wonderful child of God, probably the most uh, energetic 90-year-old that, that I've ever met. And last weekend, she, she would have been distinguishable by the fact that she was the only one in pilgrim garb. She was entertaining and educating the kids downstairs uh, as to the Mayflower and the Thanksgiving tradition. And uh, later Sunday, she, she said she felt some pressure in her chest. She went into the hospital, had a stent put in on Monday. She called to self-report to the prayer line on Tuesday <laughs> and uh, reported to Debbie that, that uh, she was doing fine, wasn't allowed any visitors, but she just wanted to check in. Shortly after that, she was sitting up in her room talking and and uh, doing fine, and, and suddenly her, her hand went to her chest, and, and she was gone. So uh, uh, this is sad news, but obviously it's a celebration. She was, she's with the Savior she loves, and uh, she's a great child of God. If you uh, missed her sense of humor and her, and her uh, delightful Arkansas accent, um, you'll have to wait a bit to experience that again. She was a wonderful, wonderful uh, sister in Christ. Let, yes. Thank you, John. I, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. I, I had jotted a note. I mentioned it during the first service. There's a memorial service here on Friday at 4 o'clock for Belva. And uh, there are funeral services in Arkansas Monday or Tuesday of this week. I don't think this has hit the obituary section in our papers yet, but... Four o'clock here at New Hope, there will be a memorial service for, for Belva. Thank you, John. Mark mentioned uh, one of his, his uh, as he finished up the Revelation series, one of the challenges that he had for us was uh, that what you believe about God that determines what you do next. And, and I want to follow on that. What you believe about God determines what you do next. And if you recall, he left us with a passage from Ephesians 3:20, where Paul says to us, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So tremendous power that God has available to us. The question is, uh, what's the next step? Uh, how do we access that power? And that's what we're here to talk about today, powerful prayer. And I'd like to refer you to a, a section in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23. If you'd turn to that, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, you'll find it on page 277. 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23. And it, it is the story of Elisha's confrontation with the king of Aram at the time. Beginning at verse 8, 
Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, that is, the army of Aram came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Sounds like a segment out of Star Wars, doesn't it? If you remember that. And he brought them to Samaria. And when they'd come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, so that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. So we have a, a tale of two worlds, two planes of existence, if you will. The natural world, that is the visible world, the physical world that we can see and apprehend with our five senses. And then the, the spiritual world, which is just as real, uh, but which we cannot see unless we are empowered to see it by the, the Holy Spirit through the eyes of faith. Notice also that events in the invisible realm, events in the spiritual realm, drive events in the natural realm. They're related, both for good and for evil. And the greater power is in the spiritual realm, isn't it, from what we see here. He said to, he said to his servant, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. There were evil spiritual forces behind the king of Aram and his army trying to extinguish the life of God's servant. There were forces of powerful uh, spiritual forces of good, God and his angels, uh, behind those fiery chariots. Those fiery chariots and, and horses were the angels of God protecting Elisha. So it was, a, it was a spiritual battle. 
Notice also that Elisha uh, influenced what took place in the natural order, in the natural world, the physical world, by what he did in the spiritual world. He asked, asked God in the spiritual world to intervene in a, in a way that changed events in the physical world, didn't he? First of all, he prayed, he prayed one simple prayer. And notice that he didn't, he didn't go on and on here. He prayed one simple prayer. He said, Lord, uh, open his eyes. And, uh, and he opened the eyes of his servant, removed the spiritual blindness that was there so that, ser- that servant could see into the spiritual reality that was behind the, the physical events. And then he prayed a second simple prayer to stop those evil forces in their tracks. He said, Lord, make them blind. And, and God complied and made them blind. And it stopped what Satan had schemed. It stopped it in its tracks, didn't it? Uh, in the same way that we can, we can pray to defeat Satan's schemes and, and bring God's protection. Let, let me share, lest, you, lest we think that this is something that God stopped doing somewhere along the line. Let me share with you a modern day example. This is out of the book, The Invisible War, on uh, spiritual warfare by a, a fellow named uh, Chip Ingram. I'm going to share with you an example that uh, he shares very similar to what uh, Elisha's experience was here. He, this is a, has to do with a medical missionary in Africa. The, the missionary was serving as a medic in Africa. Periodically, he had to travel by bicycle through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. It was a two-day trip, so he would camp in the jungle overnight. He'd always made the trip without incident, but one day when he arrived in the city, he saw two men fighting. One was seriously hurt, so he treated the man, shared Christ with him, and went on his way. The next time the missionary traveled to the city, the man he'd treated approached him. I know you carry money and medicine, the man said to the missionary. Some friends and I followed you into the jungle that night after you treated me, knowing you'd have to sleep in the jungle alone. We waited for you to go to sleep, planning to kill you and take your money and drugs. But as we started to move into the campsite, we saw 26 armed guards surrounding you. There were only six of us, so we knew we couldn't possibly get near you, so we left. When he heard this, the missionary laughed. He he said, that's impossible. I I assure you, I was alone in the campsite. But the young man pressed the point. No, sir, I I wasn't the only one who saw the guards. My my friends saw them too, and, and we counted them together. Several months later, this missionary attended his home church in Michigan and told of his experience. A man in the congregation interrupted his presentation by jumping to his feet and saying something that left everyone in the church stunned. With a firm voice, he said, We were with you in spirit. The missionary looked perplexed. The man continued, On that night in Africa, it was morning here. I stopped by the church to get some materials for a ministry trip, but as I was putting my bags in the trunk, I felt the Lord leading me to pray for you. It was an extremely strong urge. So I got on the phone and gathered some other men to come into the church and pray for you as well. Then the man turned to the rest of the congregation and he said, will all the men that prayed with me that day stand up right now? And one by one they stood up, all 26 of them. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. God still does that. 
My point with these examples is that we're, we're in a war. You and I, if we belong to Christ Jesus, we're, we're in a spiritual warfare. We, we can't escape it. We're part of the battle. Um, I think, I think in uh, the passage from Elisha, we'll find a, a number of lessons that we can use in, in, that, in that warfare. Uh, the first one is just that, that, that we're soldiers in the middle of a cosmic conflict between, between God and Satan. And you know that the stakes, the, the prize, is control over the hearts and, and minds and eternal destinies of every human being on planet Earth. That, that's what's at stake. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the wicked forces, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It, it's, a, it's a spiritual battle. And yes, Jesus has won the victory, but Satan is not done fighting yet. And God, through his church, has, has designed his plan so that we're to take back this world from the, the evil one and, and, uh, and bring it back into the kingdom once again. Uh, lesson number two, the natural man apart from Christ has been blinded by Satan, is oblivious both to the, the nature of the conflict that's taking place and, and the spiritual forces that are operating around him. The, the natural man doesn't see it. You know, we're all conditioned. A natural man or, or woman is conditioned to see things through their five senses and automatically almost discounts anything that doesn't come through those five senses. We have another sense that, that God has given us. But that's, that's why very often when we talk with people, <clears throat> excuse me, when we talk with people about spiritual things, <clears throat> we encounter resistance because there is a spiritual blindness there. Just like in Elisha's servant couldn't, could not see spiritual truth because his eyes had not been opened. In the same way, very often when we talk to someone about the Savior, there is a spiritual blindness there. They don't see the spiritual reality because uh, that, that veil or that blindness is there. And it's more than just a matter of persuading them intellectually. There's a, a spiritual transaction that has to take place with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's why, folks, that uh, prayer is such an important prerequisite for evangelism. And I'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. Lesson three, God has given us the Holy Spirit to allow us to understand spiritual truth. Uh, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. He says, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You see, the Holy Spirit communicates with us spirit to spirit uh, to, tell, to tell us what we, we need to know to, so that we can receive and comprehend spiritual truth and so that we can carry out God's direction. That's why from time to time, uh, if your experience is, is like mine, when you're reading God's Word, when you're in prayer, sometimes just when you're driving down the street, and God will give you an impression of something you know that you didn't learn through your five senses. You, you know it wasn't an intellectual transaction. You know that the Holy Spirit uh, gave you an insight or gave you a prompting to do something that uh, didn't come through your five senses. It came spirit to spirit because if we belong to Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit 
And, uh, and we have a, a spirit being another conduit for communication, if you will. Lesson four, the prayer of faith is the weapon that God has given us to remove spiritual blindness, stop Satan's evil schemes, protect other Christians, and change the course of human events in our world. Uh, notice that first simple prayer that Elisha made. Lord, open his eyes so that he can see in, in verse 17. And the second simple prayer, strike this people with blindness, I, I pray. Uh, Elisha's simple prayers move supernatural forces to remove that spiritual blindness but, but stop that army of Aram and the supernatural forces that were behind it in its tracks. That, that was spiritual warfare. The same thing with the 26 men and the medical missionary. That, that is spiritual warfare uh, that we're to be engaged in. Well, Paul tells us uh, not only that we're in a battle, but he, he tells us how to dress for it. In, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, our strength comes from the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And and this is the, the armor that Paul describes to us. He says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth or the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the the word of God. So that's the equipment. That's how we're to be equipped and and dressed. Let's let's stop right there. And, And I think a lot of times when we talk about spiritual warfare and about this Ephesians 6 passage, this is where we end it. We, we begin talking about uh, what we're supposed to wear and how we're supposed to equip ourselves. We, we never really talk about what we're supposed to do after that. You know, one of my uh, previous careers was as a state trooper. And uh, state troopers have, uh, all of us had a, a unique specialty. Mine happened to be dealing with barricaded gunmen and hostage takers. I was part of a team, a SWAT team, if you will, that uh, usually flew out in the middle of the night to deal with a situation like that someplace in the, in the state. Uh, usually it was a barricaded gunman. It was a hostage, hostage taking and, and we were to get the hostages back or it was a, uh, we diversified like any good businessman. We diversified and began, we were asked to knock over uh, fortified drug houses at, at one period in time and, and so that the narcotics officers could go in there safely. Um, but when I dressed for that work, it, it reminded me as I read this passage again uh, how I dressed very similarly for, similarly for that work. I, I had a big ceramic bulletproof vest that I wore. I, I had a bulletproof helmet and a face shield. I had a four-foot uh, Lexan shield that was bulletproof that weighed about 30 pounds that I hung on my left arm. And, and then I, I had a big automatic pistol with a magazine that stuck out the, the butt. Now, I didn't get dressed up like that for appearances' sake. My, my team didn't get dressed up like that for appearances' sake. I got dressed up like that because we were very likely going to engage in a gunfight with somebody. In the same way, folks, Paul doesn't tell us to get dressed up like this for no reason. 
he, he tells us to get dressed like this because we're going to engage in warfare. And in the next verse, which we sometimes miss, the next verse, he tells us how we're going to do that. How, how do we fight in, in, uh, in a spiritual warfare? He says in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, which is a request, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, pray all the time and keep praying for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He was a prisoner at that time. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul wants us, as a, uh, in order to engage in the battle, he wants us to pray all the time, to pray with perseverance, to pray by ourselves and to pray together, and, and to pray for uh, each other, to pray for protection from Satan's evil schemes, to pray for our families and communities, to pray for lost people that uh, God has brought into our sphere of influence that he, he wants us to bring into the kingdom, and he's waiting for us to, to pray for. There's a a helpful hint with regard to the translation of that uh, sword of the Spirit, where it says the sword of the Spirit, uh, a better translation is the sword from the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit implies that the Holy Spirit has a sword that he's swinging for us. That's not the case at all. The Holy Spirit hands us the sword. And the sword is what? The Word of God. The sword is the Word of God that the Holy Spirit gives us. And, and that's why it's, it's so important to be in the Word of God. Here's a question. If the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, does that mean that I, that I need to know the Word, study the Word, meditate on the Word, memorize the Word? Well, it, it all depends. How big a sword do you want? Do you, do you want a sword like this? Some of us are trying to do spiritual battle with a sword like this. Friends, I want a big honking sword if I'm going to take on the devil. Don't you? Well, well that means that, that we need to spend time in, in God's word. If you know the word, you can quote it back to Satan like Jesus did when he was tempted. Every response, uh, he, talk, he, he talked scripture back to Satan, didn't he? And it will enable us to pray the word in, in a way that will allow us to, to bring down God's power and God's promises for the things that that we need. It will enable us to pray those lost people in our lives that we love into the kingdom over time. And I'll talk more about that. One of the promises that Jesus uh, left us with was, uh, that's a good example, is Mark 11, 22 through 24. Jesus said, uh, answered saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray, ask and believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Folks, I think that one reason why we don't see more answers to our prayer is we don't pray with the kind of expectancy and faith that God intends for us. Faith is, is like a muscle, and it, and it becomes stronger with exercise. Part of that exercise is spending time with God in his word so the Holy Spirit can encourage us in faith. 
spending time in prayer and seeing those answers to prayer come back to us. That's how we exercise our, our faith. Billy Graham was a, a person who did that naturally, does that naturally. Uh, a, a story about Billy was that he was doing a crusade at Shea Stadium in New York. The airplanes from LaGuardia at the time uh, flew over the stadium, dozens of them by the hour. And as he was preparing for that crusade, he was uh, doing some counselor training the, the night before the crusade actually began. And he paused for a moment as the engines roared overhead and, and quietly said, we'll have to do something about this noise. This just won't do. He bowed his head and said a simple prayer to the effect, Lord, we ask you to shift the wind and send these planes in another direction. Thank you. Amen. He went back to his training. The counselors were pretty shocked at such a prayer and they didn't really know what to expect. Uh, but God did. He answered Billy Graham's prayer in a wondrous way. The morning newspaper reported that the winds had changed during the night and the airplanes over Shea Stadium had to be routed another way. For several days thereafter, thousands of people came to Christ under Graham's anointed preaching and at the end of the crusade, the winds reverted to their normal flow and the airplanes returned to their normal flight patterns. Billy Graham was a person, is a person, who is used to asking God for what he needs and, and used to seeing God respond. But you know, it takes, uh, it takes some, some white space in our lives. Uh, many of us are running so hard that we don't have any solitude. We don't have any time to spend with God in his word and in prayer. If, if we hope to be effective and powerful in prayer, we have to create some white space in our lives so that we can spend time to hear God. Proficiency in the word equals proficiency in the battle. Proficiency in prayer equals proficiency in the battle. I love what uh, Beth Moore said about this in, in her study, Believing God. She said, I, I love I, I ache for the body of Christ in our generation to learn how to tarry before God and expectantly wait for him to speak. I'm desperate to learn it for myself. If we did, what a revelation we would receive. We cannot have a drive-through relationship with God and expect to behold his glory. Joshua didn't get a to-go order with God. He dined with him for days. Time with God. Lesson five. The, the church is the body of Christ. The, the physical representation of Christ on earth and the force that God has commanded to engage the enemy and advance his kingdom. You know, Jesus himself established the church. He tells us that in Matthew 16, 18 through 19. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He gives us that kind of power and authority. And, and God's purpose for the church, this is something I, I think that is overlooked sometimes, but God has a particular purpose for the church that has to do with that spiritual reality, with those rulers and principalities and powers. He tells us in Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, his, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms 
according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that the way that God intends to reveal his, uh, his amazing plan for the, the universe, a lot of the things that Mark has been talking about over the past year, the way that God intends to, to reveal that to those spiritual authorities, both the ones who are in the employ of Satan and who are evil, those also the, the uh, ones who are, uh, have allegiance to God, the way he intends to do that is, is through the church. That is by us acting out uh, the kingdom mission, by acting out the transforming of hearts and minds and our families and our schools and our communities and our governments and uh, ultimately our, our nation and the world. You know, Jesus has won the victory overall, but that doesn't mean Satan has stopped fighting. Uh, Satan is, is still trying to, to take back the kingdom, and God has commissioned the church and us as individual believers to act as a physical representation of Jesus Christ here to take back the kingdom piece by piece from the control of, control of Satan. So, how do we do that? Well, prayer is, is the means that God has given us to leverage spiritual authority or spiritual power from the spiritual realm to make a difference in the natural realm, in the, in the world that we live in from day to day. And Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 10.35. He describes that supernatural leverage. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Some of those strongholds are in the spiritual realm, folks. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself, sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And, and that's the, the supernatural power that changes human hearts from the inside out. And that's why sometimes uh, someone who's been so hardened to the, uh, to the message of the gospel and so resistant to the claims of Christ after a period of praying for that person, you'll find that their heart is softened and that they're open to the gospel and you can talk with them about spiritual things. That's because of the kind of weapons we use in our warfare. God, God says uh, in another passage that, that he, he uh, turns the hearts of kings and rulers like a watercourse in his hand. In other words, God influences the decisions that those rulers make. And, and part of that is as a result of our prayer. We can influence that through, through prayer. Jesus promised us again in uh, Matthew 18, uh, 18 through 20 uh, about the power of prayer when we, pay, when we pray in agreement especially. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth has been, sh- shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That's, that's the power we have when we agree together in prayer. John Franklin, in his book, uh, And the Place Was Shaken, speaks exactly to that point. He says, The greatest workings of God come by corporate prayer, and we will not see the power of God in sufficient measure to transform the world around us until we pray together. We must make praying together a priority equal to preaching and teaching. Your spiritual fate depends not just on prayer, but on praying in community with other Christians. Personal prayer lives alone will not result in the working of God to the degree needed for spiritual transformation 
in our lives, our churches, our cities, or our nation. God in his sovereignty has determined that something happens when we pray together that transcends praying separately. His working increases exponentially. If we don't pray together, we'll continue losing our country. If we do pray together God's way, we can expect a a revolution of our society. The the power of uh, corporate prayer. You know, uh, an example of that that I'd like to share with you is is one uh, some years ago. There have been literally hundreds of awakenings and revivals in this country over the, over the years, over the two-plus centuries that the U.S. has been in existence and in other places in the world as well. But, but one that is a good example of what prayer can do was one that uh, began, and usually a, a revival or a great awakening that sweeps the whole country will begin with one person and, and with a small group of, of people praying. And that was the case in, on September 23, 1857. A young man named... Jeremiah Landfear, who was part of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York. He posted a sign on the Fulton Street Church building that read, Prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour, as your time permits. Jeremiah waited 10 minutes, then 10 more. By 12.30, no one had come. Then at 12.30, one man entered the room. Then another, and another, until there were six men praying. Nothing extraordinary happened that hour. But the men decided to meet to pray the following week. That time, 20 20 men came. The next week, 40. Because of the climbing interest in prayer, Jeremiah decided that they should meet for prayer daily. Within days of that decision, a financial panic hit the country. Banks began to close and people lost their jobs. Conditions were ripe for a revival. Soon 3,000 people were jamming into the Fulton building to pray. Within six months, there were 20,000 prayers, and at least 20 other corporate meetings had begun in the city. Corporate prayer movements such as these began to spread quickly across the nation and in different parts of the world. The years 1858 and 1859, that is the next two years, became known as Annus Mirabilis, that is the year of miracles. During this era, powerful missionary movements were birthed and great leaders such as Dwight Moody, Andrew Murray, and William Booth came to fruitfulness. When Jeremiah and his five prayer partners began their prayer vigil, they had no idea that God would use it to bring an estimated one million persons into the kingdom. The Fulton Street prayer meeting is just one of thousands of examples of corporate prayer that preceded a major awakening. Corporate prayer is the foundational pattern in nearly all great revivals of history. Though a variety of prayer strategies are certainly important, none can rival the historic role of the corporate prayer meeting. Truly, God works through people who pray in one accord for the expansion of his kingdom. Noted pastor and author Francis, Francis Frangipan uh, comments on the, on the, along the same lines. He says, Uh, While the work of revival is often initiated through the love and intercession of one person, there is a time when the prayer burden must be picked up and shared by many. It is not enough that God graces one individual to become a man or woman of prayer. The Lord seeks to make his church a house of prayer. One way or the other, the plan of God is to make intercessors of us all. You know, um, what happened in 1857... Uh, is happening around the world right now. 
John Franklin, in his book, And the Place Was Shaken, recounts some examples of what's happening. And I was unaware, frankly, of what is happening around the world right now with the explosion of faith. In Nepal, for example, where there were just 2,000 Christians in 1990, now 10 years later, that number has grown to half a million. Cambodia only listed 600 Christians in 1990, but 60,000 by the beginning of the 21st century. A few years ago in Asia, there were only about 15 million Christians. Today, there are well over 100 million. And, and Korea is another example where there were 2% uh, Christians to about 40% Christians today. And one church in Seoul, for example, is growing so rapidly, so explosively, there, there are over a million members in that church in Seoul. Some of you remember Idi Amin. When we think of Uganda, we think of Idi Amin, the brutal dictator uh, who killed so many of his own people, turned Uganda into a killing field. And following that, there, the uh, country was ravaged by an AIDS epidemic that claimed one in three people in, in Uganda. The World Health Organization said that Uganda would, the economy would collapse by the year 2000. Instead, revival has come to that country and the AIDS rate is down to 5%. One church grew from 7 to 2,000 members in just two weeks. As of 2005, they had 22,000 members and they planted 150 other churches. Similar things are happening in South and Central America. In India, one denomination alone tracked about 3 million conversions in eight years. Again, John Franklin makes the following observation about the reason this is happening in other parts of the world and, and not in, uh, in some others. He says, Christianity is advancing in most quarters except four primary areas. If you live in North America, you know one of them. The other three are Japan, Australia, and Western Europe. Guess what the common denominator is? Everywhere Christianity marches forward, the Christians spend significant time praying together. And he concludes that much of America's moral slide and the declining influence of churches in our communities is due to the fact that American Christians have, to a large degree, abandoned the practice of fervent, united, corporate prayer. What about American churches that do pray together? Well, there are a couple examples. In, in the, one of the books that I've listed for you as a reference, The Prayer-Saturated Church, church uh, Cheryl Sachs cites an example of a church that uh, was really in... in a terrible situation a number of years ago. A young pastor named uh, Greg Frizzell, fresh out of seminary, uh, came to that church. It had just been through a, a huge uh, moral uh, difficulty, uh, a large public scandal, was being sued and uh, owed a couple million dollars in, in legal debt, was in a crime-ridden community. Membership was declining. There was disunity in the church. and Everybody was fighting. He didn't know what to do, so he called his congregation to focused intercession in, in all church prayer meetings. And at one point in the process, uh, 10 intercessors met to pray for 60 people. They prayed for revival in the church and for the other issues they had, but they prayed in specifically for 60 people uh, who church members knew and they were loved ones, but they had not come to Christ. And, and Frizzell said some of them were very hard cases that had resisted individual prayer for years. After four months, 45 of the 60 had come to Christ. And uh, some of those were very hard cases. In, in addition, there was unity in the church. The debt had 
inexplicably, inexplicably been forgiven and uh, the church was cleared of all legal charges. And he attributes that, those changes to uh, an organized and focused network of intercessors dedicated to serious prayer for the, the church. One more example. In the book Dangerous Intersections by uh, Jay Dennis and Jim Henry, they describe a Phoenix church in which the pastor called people to prayer. And this is the way he did it. He had people pull at random 80 names from the Phoenix phone book. And um, he said, what I want you to do, this, this team of uh, intercessors, he, he, he asked everybody in the church to pray for those names, those 80 names, for 90 days. He, he pulled another 80 names at random from the Phoenix phone book and asked uh, people not to do anything with them, to set those names aside for 90 days. At the end of the 90 days, members called all 160 people on both lists, and what they asked them was whether they would allow Christians to visit them to, to pray for them. Of the, the lists that were set aside, in other words, the 80 people that were not prayed for, only one of those folks uh, agreed to allow Christians to, to come and visit. Of the other, the other list... The, uh, the 80 people who did receive prayer for 90 days, 69 of the 80 people for whom the Christians prayed were prepared to allow them to visit. 45 uh, uh, invited them in, made coffee, and shared with them special prayer requests. Isn't that startling? The, the difference that prayer makes in preparing the hearts of people for the gospel question for you. We all have people in our lives that we love, but who are far from Christ, who are not yet believers. What could we accomplish in their lives for eternity if, if we got our heads together and, and prayed for them? John Wesley said, God does nothing on earth save in answer to believing prayer. Prayer is the mechanism that God uses to leverage spiritual power to make a difference in the natural world. I've got, uh, in closing, I've got a six-minute video trailer that I want to show you. Um, George Otis is a guy who has gone around the world and documented some of these transformations that have taken place in communities uh, around the world as a result, or, as a result of the uh, people coming together in prayer and the Holy Spirit uh, going to work in that particular city. So this is... This is uh, six minutes, and it documents some of what God is doing in, in other parts of the world. And I'm going to show you that, and then I have a challenge for you. I don't think that uh, we completely understand the, the corrosive impact that, uh, that Satan and his evil schemes have had in our culture, or I, I don't think sometimes we completely understand the role that God is, has for each individual, each individual church and, and what role he has for new hope here in this community. We're not here by accident. If God has given you, if this has piqued your interest and, and God has given you a desire to be involved through prayer in making a difference in this church, in, in uh, our schools, in the larger community, uh, through a... a a prayer effort where we, we come together and address some of these things in, uh, in prayer with God, then I'm, I'm going to invite you to a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. We're going to show this, the whole video. I, I think what you'll find is that it will give you a vision for how God works and how God can work in this community 
if we come together in prayer. Uh, I don't want anybody to feel browbeaten or obligated to, to attend. Uh, if that's the case, then, then you shouldn't be there. If God is drawing you into a, a deeper walk with him by means of prayer and, and into having an, an impact in the community, then I'd, in, I'd invite you to come. Nobody is going to be asked to, to pray out loud. We'll probably we'll watch the video. We'll spend another half hour probably in prayer and, and talking about the implications and trying to discern how God is, is uh, leading us. Uh, but that will be Wednesday night at, at 7 o'clock. Now let's, uh, let's close with prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for this time together today. I, I thank you for each one here and for uh, the way that you touch their hearts and, and for the work that your Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. I pray that uh, you'll guide them into your purposes and that you'll guide this church into your purpose for it in this community, that you'll show us clearly what it is that you have for us, which part of the kingdom that, that uh, you've, you've designed or you've uh, deigned that we should take back for, for you in, in this community. And, and we ask that uh, it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.